0: I would say that probably three out of the last four times I've been here, I've started coughing in the middle of the sermon, lost my voice completely and struggled to get through, but I came prepared. I bought some Ludens on the way here, so I've got some cough drops that I plan on. I've already got one in right now, so hopefully that'll prevent any voice loss that could potentially come. But it is good to be back with you, and I do want to talk about a very important Subject today, and that is marriage. Because in the beginning, God created Adam, and He was able to look at Adam and say, It is not good that you are alone. And so, after God looked at the rest of His creation, and after He realized that there was none other of that creation that was suitable to be His companion, He put Adam into a deep sleep. He took a rib out of Adam, and from that He fashioned Eve. And scripture says that God brought Eve to him. And upon seeing Eve, Adam says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 23, At last, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And the very next verse says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so, from the very beginning, God not only created Adam and Eve, but He brought them together, creating marriage, a relationship that was designed specifically for them. And this relationship was perfect from the outset. And not just because it was created by a perfect designer, but because it was designed in a perfect, sinless world between two perfect, sinless people. It was indeed, in every sense of the word, holy matrimony, exactly how God wanted it. But of course, Scripture tells us that Adam and Eve introduced sin into the world by eating of the fruit that God specifically told them not to. And from that point on, sin has affected not only every man and every woman, but by default, every marriage relationship that has come after that. Sin is what oftentimes turns the beautiful marriage relationship into a battleground. Instead of two people acting and living as one flesh, sin divides them. They start living separate lives. They begin pursuing their own dreams, their own desires. A lack of respect builds up between them. Bickering ensues, verbal and physical abuse, and unfortunately sometimes even unfaithfulness. And pretty soon the separation that sin causes becomes so wide that the two simply throw up their hands and say, We give up. And they get a divorce. And as we all know, divorce has become far too common and far too accepted in our society and far too common and far too accepted in the church. In fact, the average length of a marriage that ends in divorce is only eight years. The average age of a couple going through their first divorce is 30 years old. Carolyn and I have been married for six and a half years and we're right at that 30-year-old mark. And based on those first two statistics, it's about time we start considering calling it quits, isn't it? That's really sad. It is so sad that we live in a world like that. In fact, in America, there are about 876,000 divorces a year, which equates to 16,800 per week, 2,400 per day, or one every 36 seconds. And so depending on how long I talk this afternoon, there's probably going to be around 58 divorces that occur during the course of this sermon alone in America alone. And this is not at all what God wants And again, this is a very important topic, and I want to convey with us the idea of marriage, but I want to do it from an eternal lens. I want us this this afternoon to discuss what I am calling an eternal-minded marriage. And when I say an eternal-minded marriage, I mean a biblical marriage that is Christ-centered and desires that each spouse live in eternity with their Savior. Because that is exactly what God wants from our marriages. An eternity-minded marriage is one that honors God's design for the marriage relationship. It understands its purpose, what what it is a reflection of. And it understands that the ultimate goal is for both spouses to end up in eternity with God in heaven. And so this afternoon, I want us to take a look at Ephesians chapter 5 and view that text through the lens of this eternal-minded marriage, keeping in mind the ultimate goal, keeping in mind what a marriage is supposed to look like and what it is supposed to mean. So if you would, go on and open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 5. We are going to begin in verse 22. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22. And the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So, the first thing that I want to do is I want to talk about the God ordained roles of an eternal minded wife and an eternal minded husband. And the first thing that we're going to see about an eternal-minded wife is that she is submissive. And we see that in verses 22 through 24. Now, in our culture, as we're all familiar, submission is a foreign concept. Now, America is a land of opportunity. It's a land where both men and women can achieve whatever they set their minds to. And that is a great thing. And I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. The downside is, we've become defined as a nation that craves power, that craves authority. We don't like being told what to do, and we will overpower people in order to get what we want. But the idea of submission means that we have to suppress our will, suppress our desire to honor someone else above ourselves. In other words, we have got to be humble. And so verse 22 in our society at least, puts a very bad taste in people's mouths. In fact, you might hear somebody say in a very condescending way, well, the Bible says that a woman has to submit to her husband. And there are two things that I've noticed that typically happen when this verse is referenced. And you picked up on the first one is that is when it's communicated, it's oftentimes communicated in a very negative way. Like a slave having to submit to a harsh and an unfair slave master. Something that just doesn't seem fair. But understand that that is not how this verse is to be understood. Because submission does not mean inferior. In fact, verse 31 of our text says that husbands and wives become one flesh. In other words, they are on the same team. And what do teams do? Teams work in unison to accomplish a goal. And every good team has a team captain. And the rest of the team looks up to that captain for leadership, for guidance, for support, for direction. The team is willing to submit their will in order to look to the team captain for guidance on the court. And so in the same way, a husband is on the same team as the wife but the husband is the team captain. He's there to provide guidance, to provide encouragement, direction, support, and to lead his team, his marriage, to the ultimate victory, which is eternity. And so submission is not an inferiority. Submission, in fact, is a very supportive role because the team captain lays out the vision. He lays out the game plan for how the marriage is to succeed And the team then supports the captain in accomplishing this goal. Another way of thinking about it is exactly how Genesis 2.18 says. A woman was given as man to be a helper. And then the second thing that I notice when people look at this verse is that they completely neglect the last portion of the verse. The verse in its entirety says, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do the Lord. Remember, Paul is showing us in this context that the marriage relationship is a picture of Christ's relationship with the church. In verse 23, he says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. It is a picture. It is a reflection of, Of God's relationship, of Christ's relationship with the church. As the head of the church, Christ has the authority to lead and to guide his church. As the head of the family, the husband has been given the authority to lead and to guide his wife. And so when the church submits to Christ, the head, they're bringing him honor, they're bringing him glory, and they follow him because they know that he is the only way to salvation. In the same fashion, a wife submits to her husband, not only to show him honor and respect, but as a way of saying, listen, you are our family's spiritual leader, and I'm going to follow and trust your lead. Christ shepherds his sheep. A husband is to shepherd his wife. And so the role of submission, again, is by no means an inferior position. It has nothing to do with intelligence. It has nothing to do with capabilities. Anybody who knows my wife knows that she is a lot smarter than I am. Simply, submission is an honorable, beautiful position that glorifies Christ, that reflects the church's relationship to him and supports the husband with his task of making sure his family is prepared for eternity. The second thing we see is that an eternal-minded wife is thankful. One of the primary reasons that the church is submissive to Christ is because of the gratitude or the thanks that they have for Christ, for his words, for his actions, for his example, for his life, for his sacrifice. First Corinthians chapter 15 verse 57 says... But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God for the victory that is in Jesus Christ. That is why one of the primary motivations that the church shows thanks to him. And an eternal-minded wife is thankful for her husband. She's thankful for her husband who works to provide for the family. Thankful that he provides spiritual leadership, that he is willing to protect, that he is willing to guard and to direct them. Many of you may be familiar with a book written by Gary Chapman called The Five Love Languages. And in that it's a book about five ways that couples communicate and the five main avenues of communication. And one of his love languages that he lays out is words of affirmation. In other words, our spouse's love language may be that they just need to hear complimentary things, words of thanksgiving, words of gratitude. And I believe that that ties in a lot with what we're saying right here. Because men, oftentimes, need to be told that they're doing a good job. They need to hear that they're being appreciated, that their hard work is being seen and respected. And so this gratitude that a wife can give to her husband oftentimes motivates the husband to be an even better provider, an even better leader for his family. And I would say that this motivation or this thankfulness ties in to the respect that a wife is supposed to have for a husband as seen in verse 33. So an eternal-minded wife is also to be a thankful wife. Lastly, an eternal-minded wife is to be responsive. And what I mean by that is it is impossible for a husband to lead a wife who refuses to follow. In other words, how can the team captain lead the team if they're off doing their own things and they refuse to respond to him? In Acts chapter 5, verse 31, says, God exalted him at His right hand, that being Christ, as leader and Savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So the Scripture tells us that Christ has been exalted as leader and Savior. But guess what? He only leads and saves those who respond to Him, who are responsive to His calling, who are responsive to the salvation that He provides. But understand that responsiveness is not a feeling, you don't respond positively out of obligation. The responsiveness that I'm talking about now is a desire to positively react to the leadership and guidance of the husband and to support the overall mission of the marriage. A husband lays out a vision, a plan. A wife's responsibility is to respond positively to it. So those are just three aspects that we see of an eternal-minded wife. But next, where our attention is drawn to an eternal-minded husband, beginning in verse 25, it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies because he who loves his wife loves himself. Now, obviously, when we read this, there's a word that sticks out, and that word is love. And when you first read that, you're like, wow, man, like, that's it? A husband, all he has to do is love? That seems pretty simple. But there is a lot implied in that little four-letter word. Because verse 25 says that a husband is to love as Christ loved. That implies a lot of things. Christ gave his life for his church, for his bride. That is how a husband is supposed to love. And so there are some things that we can draw from this love, some attributes of an eternal-minded husband. And that is, first and foremost, that an eternal-minded husband is to be responsible and what I mean by that is that he is not only responsible for his actions, but he is responsible for the actions or the shortcomings of even his wife. Think about this Christ didn't come to this planet to die on the cross for his sins, Christ came to die on the cross for the sins of his bride, his church. He took on the responsibilities of her shortcomings. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ took on the responsibility of our sin. He took the punishment of our sin. He took the responsibility for His bride, the church. You see, an eternal minded husband doesn't say things like, Well, my wife has got issues. My wife has got problems that she needs to figure out. No, an eternal minded husband says, We've got issues. We've got problems that we need to sort out, that we need to figure out. Adam in the garden not only stood by as Eve disobeyed God, but it seems from the context that he refused to take responsibility. And he simply says, listen, she did it. This is her problem. But eternal-minded husbands are to take responsibility. They're to do whatever it takes to maintain the spiritual health and direction of everything that goes on under their roof. That isn't the attitude of an eternal-minded husband. Second, an eternal-minded husband is to take action. When Christ saw that people needed to be fed the word, he didn't just sit on the sidelines and expect someone else to do it. When he saw that a lesson needed to be taught, he didn't just turn his back and walk away. And most importantly, when he saw that humanity was in need of a savior, he stepped up and he took action. 1 John 4, verse 19 says, we love because he first loved us. He took action. He took initiative. Jesus takes action. And an eternal-minded husband is to do the exact same thing. I've alluded to a vision for a marriage. Every husband needs to have a vision for their marriage. We need to take the initiative to set up spiritual goals for our marriages. How are we going to accomplish these goals? What steps are we going to take to make sure Christ stays at the center of our marriage? Spiritually, what do we want our marriages to look like 10, 15, 20 years from now? What spiritual initiatives do we need to take to get there? Maybe we should pray together more often. Maybe we should study together more often. Maybe we should fear, admire, and worship God together more often. How is our marriage going to glorify God, and how are we going to lead others to him, These are all goals for a spiritually-minded, eternal-minded marriage that a husband needs to take action in. And part of taking action involves spiritual protection as well. We don't just sit aside and watch the spiritual health and well-being of our wives suffer because we're too lazy to provide spiritual nourishment for her. In Genesis chapter 3 again, it appears that Adam simply stood idly by while the serpent tempted Eve into sin. He didn't step in. He didn't take action. He showed zero initiative. Eternal-minded husbands take initiative to strengthen their wives, to protect their marriages, and to do everything they can to make sure their spouse is as prepared as possible for the day in which she will stand in front of God in judgment. And Christ does the same with his church. Lastly, an eternal-minded husband is to sacrifice. Now, we all know that Christ gave the ultimate sacrifice for his bride, which was his life. Now, I would venture to say that most married men in this room have visualized situations in which they heroically protect their families. Maybe from violent intruders, someone breaks in the house and you get all the kids locked in a bedroom and you're even willing to take a bullet if it means that you keep them safe. Or maybe you've pictured your car stalled on a train track and a locomotive pummeling towards it and you've only got seconds to get your wife and your kids out and you get them out even if it means that you don't get out in time. And if you've never visualized those things, you're probably normal and I'm probably weird. Because I've thought about those. But what I want us to do is I want us to think about these verses in a different light. Because yes, hopefully a godly husband would be willing to make the ultimate sacrifice if necessary. I hope that he would be in the right mindset to do that. But let's be real. Odds are, we will never be in a situation where we will have to literally sacrifice our lives for our family or our wife. But that doesn't just mean that we exclude this verse altogether. Because there will be daily sacrifices that have to be made on behalf of our spouse. Yes, again, Christ made the ultimate sacrifice, but his entire life, was just a series of sacrifices. When we make these daily sacrifices, it may be eating dinner together instead of watching a game. It may be saying, hey, you've had a long day. Let me go to the grocery store. Let me take care of the kids. Or it may be not hanging out with the guys because you know she needs emotional support there are sacrifices that have to be made on a daily basis so she can see your love, she can see your care, and she can see that you are an eternal-minded husband who would be willing to do anything for her. And so these are the characteristics of an eternal-minded husband. Now understand, when each spouse takes these responsibilities, these attributes, seriously... It is a beautiful thing. It does not mean that there won't be tough times, because there will be. There will be difficult moments. But understand that when both of us are on the same page doing our own roles, understanding that Christ is a sinner, that eternity is the goal, when those difficult times come, we can better be prepared to handle them. Because we'll handle them with the attributes and the characteristics of Christ. We'll show His love. His mercy, His grace, His forgiveness, His patience. And something else happens when we are living an eternity-minded marriage. And that is that we glorify Christ and we communicate the gospel to others. Marriage is a picture of the gospel. In an eternity-minded marriage, a husband and a wife show Christ in their relationships to other people. In a world where marriages are deteriorating at a rapid rate, an eternal-minded marriage sticks out like a light. And it causes people to ask, what gives? How is your marriage so good? How do you solve these problems so easily? Why are you so optimistic in your marriage? And you can respond together. It's because of Christ and what he did for his church. Do you know about Christ? Let me tell you about him. Marriage is a way that both husband and wife communicate the gospel to others together. It is a wonderful picture, a wonderful way in which the marriage relationship works. Well, I hope that this has been a beneficial study for you this afternoon. I know it has been for me. I know that Carolyn and I have both profited Uh, from the efforts that have gone into uh, the lesson this afternoon. If you have become a Christian and you are married, and maybe you are not treating your spouse or living up to your roles the way you know you should, we can pray for you. We can help you. Or maybe you're just a Christian, a single Christian, who knows that you've gone off and you're not living the the Christ-centered life that he expects. We can pray for you. We can strengthen you or if you have simply not entered into a relationship with him at all, but you know that is the right thing to do, you know that your soul hangs in the balance, and you need to accept his invitation to salvation. Make that choice this afternoon. If there is anything that we can do for you, please come forward as together we stand and as we sing.